Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to the ICA. We've got a sold-out audience here tonight. Um, I wanted to start by asking you a question um, about how this film, Lives of Performers, came into existence. Um, your first three future films all grew out of hybrid works that combined performance with film or slide projection. Um, could you tell us about the interim work that led to Lives of Performers, please? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, partly it was uh, feminism and, and wanting to deal with uh, 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 areas of, of politics and social life and autobiography mm -hmm. that I felt my choreography uh, could not accommodate. And I had always followed experimental film, uh, European and American. And, uh, uh, and so, and also I met Babette Mangold, who was a very experienced uh, cinematographer uh, who had come from Paris, and uh, I was introduced to her, and uh, for both of us, it was a, a very opportune time to uh, collaborate on this work, and she taught me all about filmmaking, especially editing, and uh, I, I gave her uh, uh, permission to just shoot any way she wanted some of the scenes, especially the rehearsal mm. scenes in that film. And uh, so I was launched, um, and uh, I continued to make films, and I uh, made maybe one more dance uh, before devoting myself totally to filmmaking in, uh, for the next 20, 25 years. Okay, thank you. In the um, second sequence of Lives of Performers, we see a number of photographs from another uh, performance from 1971 called Grand Union Dreams. Um, and in that scene, the kind of characters reminisce and quarrel on the soundtrack. Um, some, some bits of the script are kind of read, while others um, seem to improvise lines. C could you say something about um, how you put the sequence together and the importance of non-sync sound here and throughout the movie? Well, I was working with uh, uh, people who had studied uh, movement with me in my loft, and uh, I didn't expect them to uh, uh, be to perform like trained actors. And so uh, there's no sync sound in that film at all. And, uh, so whatever texts I was using, it was in voiceover, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes attributed to them uh, while they were just talking to each other about whatever they wanted. And, uh, and so it went like that for those scenes where the, the uh, soundtrack does not match up with what you're looking at. Or, what the people are actually saying. Like that scene where a uh, uh, man and woman are facing each other and just having a, some kind of conversation. And uh, Valda Setterfield in that long gown comes in. And there's this juxtaposition of the dramatic uh, persona and this ordinary uh, uh, conversation going on. And, uh, uh, and uh, so the soundtrack 
in that film is, uh, I guess, somewhat autobiographical. It's about a love relationship. Uh, it is not really acted out in any uh, believable way uh, until the very end, where there are these uh, uh, setups from the Pabst film, uh, from the photographs, the published photographs of the Pabst film, and I had my performers enact. Uh, these uh, uh, dramatic or melodramatic photographs. To speak to that scene, I, one of the things that's quite striking about it is the lighting is very different uh, in that sequence oh, yeah. to the kind of quite yeah. flatly lit scenes and the majority of the rest yeah. of the movie. Um, yeah, I asked Babette to make a very uh, dramatic kind of lighting that, that sort of uh, uh, copied what was in the, in the photos. Uh, and the other scenes were in my loft with all the lights turned off mm. and nothing very dramatic in that respect. <laughs> and, and what was it about the, um, the Pab stills that you were kind of drawn to? You know, I guess it kind of is a, is a classic melodrama, introduces the theme of woman as victim and so on. Well, it was exactly that, uh, a way of, uh, of uh, paralleling the, uh, or referring to that particular film, which I, uh, Louise Brooks was uh, um, uh, someone I admired in the, uh, uh, throughout her career. Uh, yeah, she's in that film, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, what, what's, what's the name of it again? Uh, uh, is it Lulu or Louise Brooks? Is that the name you're Lulu, looking for? Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, so um, to return to the second scene uh, sequence for a moment, uh, there's this wonderful line where you, where um, Shirley complains about your inclusion of the words of Carl Jung, and you reply, "Well, you know, Shirley, I've always had a, a weakness for the sweeping revelations of great men," and and it got a laugh tonight, and uh, and I guess you know this sentence seems important to me because it kind of introduces a recurring kind of issue uh, in your work regarding the authority of both the writer and director, um, and the related politics of this. Um, and I was just wondering if you could say something about that kind of area of inquiry in, in both your film and dance work. Well, in this case, I guess I was reading a lot of feminist uh, is the uh, turn of the uh, early 1970s and uh, uh, I was reading a lot of feminist uh, uh, diatribes and theorizing uh, in efforts to uh, examine uh, the 
constraints of uh, patriarchal relations, and uh, and it uh, was this kind of uh, these kinds of controversies that gave me permission to explore aspects of my own life that I felt were confining and uh, I had been uh, under the yoke of of, uh, of these kinds of patriarchal restraints. So uh, alluding to this and revealing some autobiographical material uh, was a way. And also uh, uh, challenging narrative conventions mm -hmm. of the Hollywood films uh, with this kind of fragmentation of, and uh, a contrast between what you're hearing and what you're looking at. Um, uh, so all of this was going on in this first uh, attempt to make a so-called feature film. I don't know whether that answers mm. your question. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so that, I guess that was that was 1971 to 72. Um, 74 to 76 were important years for the type of experimental feminist filmmaking with which you're associated. In 74, you released a film about a woman who, Chantal Ackman released Je Tu Il El, and Laura Mulvey and Peter Wallen released Panther Slayer, Queen of the Amazons. Ackerman's Jean Dillman, Babette Montgold's What Macy Knew, and the Berwick Street Collector's film Night Cleaners all followed the year after, as did Laura Mulvey's landmark essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. So I kind of wanted to ask, did you start to sort of feel that you were part of a new movement or, or a direction within experimental filmmaking? Uh, well, as a friend of mine said, the second film, Film of what? Not a woman who uh, she finally got out of her studio. At <laughs> first, what you just seen is, uh, uh, yeah, within the confines of my working space. And, mm. uh, um, and uh, in film about a woman who, which I guess is tomorrow. I don't know. There is. Uh, I we went to the beach and there are the <laughs> But um, my main interest in these, especially these two early films, was framing and, and the uh, confines of, of the cinematic frame. And uh, uh, so you see a lot of fragmentation of the body and mm -hmm. a film about a woman who, but that continues. Um, investigation into heterosexual uh, uh, relationships, uh, drawing on my own experiences and, uh, and critiques of the social norms that uh, can find and influence uh, my relationships. Um, mm. um, yeah, I'm uh, kind of generalizing. But, uh, I can describe a scene in film about a woman who, on the beach, uh, uh, we went to Provincetown uh, in Massachusetts, and on this big cliff, I, I positioned one of the performers, and then a shot from the top of this uh, high sand dune uh, down on two small performers uh, who were just walking around, uh, and then the camera would go to, uh, 
the, the lower perspective and look up at this tiny figure while a huge profile. So I, I was experimenting with what the camera could do in terms of distance and the close-up and, uh, and, uh, and the use of language in mm. the second film with uh, intertitles. Uh, yeah. And there's, uh, there is some yeah. sync sound, and yeah. again, voiceover, but uh, sometimes, uh, uh, I think in that, now in later films, I would fool around with sync sound that would go out of sync and yeah. uh, uh, become a title. Uh, so uh, those early films really uh, were exploring the, what I felt was the the limits of narrative and disrupting it in various ways, but exploring the, the limits of the filmic, uh, the spatial limits of the frame. Um, um, what else can I say about film about a woman who... Uh, I mean, perhaps... Uh, sticking with your point about the kind of experimental use of language, I think it, one of the significant things uh, about it is that the characters uh, on the sound uh, are sort of identified only kind of using the pronouns he or she, uh, which I guess is kind of something that was common to quite a lot of um, feminist films of the time and other experimental films. Frampton also did a film with using kind of pronominal shifters. I guess that was quite a kind of important aspect of that movie. Mm -hmm. They, uh, yeah, uh, these characters, so-called characters, did not have names. Uh, it was, uh, again, I guess a feminist project to uh, indicate gender, uh, uh, he, she, uh, yeah, um, uh, gender issues, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things um, about, you know, well, tonight's film, this, the um, the subtitle is a melodrama, but it was it was filmed about um, a woman who that B. Ruby Rich credited with redefining melodrama. Um, you know, did did your kind of uh, avant-garde filmmaking peers in New York at the time understand the like kind of logic of of the project and what you were trying to do? It's pretty unprecedented. Well, all I can say is the films progressed toward more use of more conventions in mm. terms of narrative uh, and sync sound and characterization. I used by the end, by the last one, Murder and Murder, I was using professional actors and, uh, uh, finding ways to disrupt to both... Uh, uh, exploit narrative conventions and disrupt them uh, within the same film, sometimes within the same sequence. Yeah. Sound would suddenly become an intertitle, you know, or voiceover would become an intertitle. Mm. Yeah. And I guess one of the kind of um, important aspects of that is you often had characters played by kind of multiple actors in the same movie. So the analyst in um, Journeys from Berlin is played by a man, a woman, and a nine-year-old boy who barks. The man who envied women, the man is played by two different male actors, professional actors, yeah. And uh, you know, Christina and, and, and so on. In 1982, you kind of, I mean, th speaking about this kind of transition to... Um, 
more uh, or different narrative forms. You said, as my texts become more explicitly theoretical or political, I feel a greater obligation to enclose them in a more totalized narrative and assign their utterance to more unified identities. And I was wondering, you know, why did those more overtly political or, or theoretical topics, as you put it, kind of demand a more totalized narrative? Something about coherence uh, and believability. And uh, I was very interested in my live performance work also in, in disrupting, uh, mm. creating and disrupting uh, identification by, by the audience. We go to the movies, the Hollywood movies, often as a way of losing ourselves in these identification formulas. And I was interested in utilizing those with professional actors, but also in almost every scene there's something weird going on, even in those later films, like uh, titles behind a speaker, like one of the characters is a professor, and behind her on a blackboard or different messages as she speaks. So I was just constantly both inducing identification and disrupting it often within uh, the same scene. Yeah. And I guess I came, because these films became more and more expensive and I wasn't going over to a more coherent, conventional narrativization or techniques, I realized I wouldn't be able to raise the money to make the kind of film continued. And besides, I never liked the process of making films, yeah. always sitting around, especially the later ones, with lighting. And when I came back to dancing around 1999, it was such a relief to deal with the immediacy of trained dancers again. And, uh, economics and aesthetic preference, uh, coming home to choreography, uh, both of them were at work uh, after my... Peter Wolin said, they, quote unquote, they allow you to make five films. Well, they allowed me to make seven, so I was very privileged. Well, speaking of Peter Wallen, your third movie, Christina Talking Pictures, premiered uh, in the UK at the 1976 Edinburgh Film Festival. And I know that you participated in a panel called Narrative Film and Avant-Garde with Peter, Manuel Delander and Simon Field. And I just wondered, do you remember many of the debates from the time and how did they influence your approach to filmmaking going forward? I was very influenced uh, at the beginning by, I followed avant-garde, Hollis Frampton and uh, various people, uh, I don't know, I, I have trouble with names these days, but uh, my contemporaries in the 60s and 70s, uh, I, had, uh, uh, I had seen Maya Darren's work uh, when I was in my late teens in San mm. Francisco at the Museum of Modern Art. And so I was very aware of uh, another uh, approach. While I was going to Hollywood movies and foreign films, my father, Italian-born, took me to foreign films uh, uh, very early. 
So there was this whole range of, of film viewing uh, that went back to my late teens. And so what came out of this, uh, going into filmmaking with all these different possibilities uh, uh, was a natural kind of uh, progression and development. But I was also thinking um, specifically about uh, you being in Ed- at Edinburgh in '76, and I know uh, there was a lot of debate. Around, you know, you, it's where you first quiz Mulvey about visual pleasure and narrative cinema. Paul Sharitz was kind of trying to claim all films were narrative, and you were in a kind of ascendant moment with a sort of new narrative approach to filmmaking, and it was quite an interesting moment, I guess, for the convergence of feminism and avant-garde. It was still an expanding area, experimental, mm. like the, the so-called structuralists. Yeah. I felt the limitations of, of some of this work, and uh, they weren't really, except Frampton, he, he did delve into narrative a little bit, some of his early films. But I felt there was a lot more to be explored in combining this experimental, these experimental approaches and uh, Hollywood uh, expectations of uh, way of working, yeah. Okay, that's brilliant, thank you. And, and that's my exact allotted amount of time, so I think we can open up to audience questions if anyone has one. There's a mic going around. Um, hello, thank you so much. I was just wondering, could you say a bit more about Salome and um, the influence of that on, on Vardis Solo? Um, I mean, by a coincidence, that's also just been remastered in, in 4K and, and come out again, that movie. What was it about that that it appealed to you and, 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 and sort of put that influence into, into this film as well? Oh, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so Valda, uh, who was then dancing with uh, Valda Severfield, mm. was dancing with Cunningham, with Cunningham, and uh, uh, I knew she could do this solo that was in uh, that film, uh, and uh, and uh, so I made uh, this solo for her based on. I never made anything like that again, and. Uh, uh, and also, she is one of the characters in, in that first in the lives of performers. Um, so it was uh, shot at the Whitney Museum, not in my loft. And uh, <coughs> Babette Mandel shot it, and Balda, with this obsessive relationship to this object, the ball, the head of what's his name. Uh, <laughs> um, so that was the main focus about this ball that uh, a company manipulated in that solo, in that long dress. It was from her wardrobe. But, uh, uh, I, I think I rented it from her. <laughs> uh, yeah. You mentioned experimenting to perhaps challenge Hollywood audiences. Is that because Hollywood and films became a threat to performance itself in terms of physical theatre, in terms of uh, dance and other forms of uh, performances, to return the gaze to 
those primary art forms that used to hold the attention of audiences that were now turning their gaze towards cinema? I was not that aware or concerned with the audience. It was, uh, <laughs> I think there is what continued to be a large audience for deaths and choreography, but my own turning away from it had to do with my own interests and experience, not with the audience. I mean, I've been accused of not being concerned with the audience at all. <laughs> uh, but um, I was always very aware of myself as becoming a choreographer and dancer because I enjoyed being in front of the spectatorial gaze. It gave me pleasure uh, egotistically. And so I challenged my own pleasure in the dance called Trio A, uh, in which I ignore the gaze. I mean, in ballet, you see this uh, preening, a lot of classical ballet involves all this preening to uh, gain the attention of the audience, facing the audience. And I averted my gaze deliberately from the audience in what became a, a trio, but we all danced the same solo. Whenever we faced the audience, the head was either rolling around or the eyes were closed or I turned my back and uh, I made it clear that I was not appealing to the voyeuristic gaze of the audience. So that was always a concern, but turning to film, especially uh, long films, uh, it was an opportunity to manipulate that uh, aspect of Hollywood filmmaking where you lose yourself, physical self, and uh, identifying with the performers in, in the dark space. And that was something that filmic screen managed, and I was interested in playing with that. You know. So in dance, I didn't feel I could exploit that particular relationship as I could in, in film. And one aspect of my fascination with becoming a filmmaker. Yeah. I was very interested in the presence of the cat at the center of the very emotional uh, 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 scenes. And it reminded me rather of Carolee Schneeman putting her cat at, uh, in the midst of her lovemaking in some of her movies. And indeed, uh, she French kisses her cat in one of her movies. I just wonder if you could comment on your use of the cat. <laughs> I've always had cats. <laughs> and it so happened in Lives of Performers, my cat was not very well. And I, I took her to a vet uh, after this. And, uh, that scene where the young girl is bouncing the ball, it's all shot in slow motion. So uh, the cat uh, followed the lights a lot. Or, or when Balda is on the couch, the cat was there for the warmth of her body. Uh, and I, I thought that was just a, another autobiographical aspect of that film, uh, uh, the presence of my my cat. <laughs> Question over here. Hi. Um, so I also come from like a movement background and then went into film. And when you're speaking about language, I find that in a lot of my films now, 
when there's a lack of me being able to communicate with language, I go back to movement. So there's this like going back and forth between that. And I'm, I'm curious if that happened to you while you were working or if that was like a desire to go back to dance and movement because there was something unable to be communicated through narrative. My return to dance felt like going home and the immediacy and um, dealing with people's bodies and not waiting around for lights and, uh, I mean, the whole creative process working with people is so different from making a long film. Because I never did my own camera work. I always depended on technicians. So dancers as material and uh, the immediacy of working with dancers, it felt like going home again, that was where I really belonged and where I felt the most comfortable and most, not the most creative, but comfortable, yeah. And a lot of the people I work with have become close to and some have stayed with me for 20, 25 years, yeah. Okay, we actually have one more, the, the final, final question. Thank, thank you so much, Siobhan. It's such a pleasure. Um, uh, and my question has to do with if you could go back to 1972, uh, is there anything that you would change in the process of making this film? Is there anything I would change in that film? Yes. No. <laughs> okay. I don't look back. I mean, they're made. I'm not going to. There's no use in thinking about it. Uh, uh, I mean, I've always accepted mistakes. I, I mean, in one of the films, the last shot is of me delivering some kind of monologue. I get them mixed up, and you'll recognize it from this description. Um, but the laboratory fucked it up, and uh, I accepted it. I mean, it's all, it's not uh, the lighting, or it's scratched, I don't know. I accepted the technical errors. So uh, I wasn't about to reshoot after it came out of the lab. I wasn't about to go into the studio again and reshoot it without, no, it was done, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a, that's a good note to end on. So can you all join me in thanking Yvonne Rayner?